from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 210 with guest Mike Crowley, recorded Friday, April 1st, 2011. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. You're listening to Run As Radio. I've got my co-host, Greg Hughes, with me. Hey, Richard. What's going on? Ah, uh, You know, paddling along, man. There's lots to do and barely enough time to do it. I've been doing some real serious infrastructure work lately, looking at the value of uh, MPLS networking versus uh, traditional Internet with VPN, especially direct access. I'm really impressed oh, with direct yeah. access. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, the whole the whole world of MPLS is a specialty. I mean, just doing the doing that private cloud network uh, type stuff, uh, I've spent quite a bit of time focused on that over the years just trying to find good ways to connect different locations during acquisitions together. I, I trust MPLS data center to data center. That I don't have a problem with. It's when we're trying to push it into branch offices. Not only is it, yeah. you know, you can't always get it there. Lots of countries don't have it. It's right. And it's insanely costly. Like just, I cannot believe what be. we're paying for it. Yeah, there's time, times, times you just got to go, you just got to go internet VPN and say that's good enough, right? Well, uh, I also, on. you know, thinking really hard about how we create some uh, flexibility for folks working in regional offices, because you, as soon as you get into a place like Kazakhstan, you know, sometimes stuff goes down and you need to be able to move to an internet cafe and at least get some work done. Yep, yep. It, it, it makes you think about a lot of different stuff about what is my perimeter, um, how do I define location, right? Mm-hmm. What are my security boundaries? You know, I don't want to count on my backbone as my security path. I want my endpoints secured. Sure. You know, and it, and it's just you know, great. Okay, the network is isolated. That's fine. But the machine, you know, there's no control of its USB ports or it walked out the building. Like, that's where the security risks are more than anything. I think the whole concept of folks out there sniffing your packets seems un- remote, far less likely than you lost a USB key or a laptop. Well, or, or where are they sniffing your, quote-unquote, sniffing your packets from, right? right? I mean, is it is it over the wireless network because they get access? Yeah, I mean, that still happens. Is it on a wired network that they don't have access to? Well, there's, I mean, internal threats are really important, but sure. got to remember, too, Richard, is this, with this whole, you know, as the one of the current catchphrases, the consumerization of IT. Yes. Um, and with, with more and more remote and portable workers is the, you know, the concept of the perimeter and the security boundaries has has changed whether whether IT has recognized it and reacted to it or not it's changed well we still have to get back to this basic idea of if we don't let our folks make money we're out of business too so we, yep. we can't be an impediment we need to protect them but we can't be this outrageous impediment to getting work done anyway i'm on, i'm off on a rant here i'm sure well but it's a good rant cuz you know um, another another way of approaching this is to think about it not in terms I mean, not that you completely ignore the concept of security boundaries or firewalls or perimeters, but um, also thinking about it from a data context, right? Sure. So if I have sensitive data, if I have things that I need to protect or that I need to restrict access to, how do I do that in the context of the data itself? Why, Mr. Hughes, are you backing us into today's subject? 
I think they call that a segue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ponied it up. Hey, let me introduce our guest. His name is Mike Crowley. I met him at Dev Connections, or really Exchange Connections, uh, just a few weeks ago. He's a Microsoft MVP for Exchange Server, and he works with Planet Technologies, which is based in Maryland, but has customers all over the U.S., even the world. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, and I, you've listened to our little banter back and forth at the beginning, so you know, obviously we're on topic here. You deal a lot with rights management. Indeed, and I actually had one comment about direct access, if you don't mind me throwing this in, and that's that I think a lot of the customers that first hear about direct access, uh, their initial reaction is, oh, I don't have IPv6. Maybe that'll sound good one day when we get to IPv6. Right. But uh, what a lot of people, I think, don't realize is that it does use some IPv6 magic, but it doesn't have to be all native IPv6. And so customers who have regular networks today and aren't using the fancy IPv6 stuff can still benefit from direct access. Well, and, and all it needs is IPv6 on either endpoint. So it's a Windows 7 client and uh, Server 2008R2 is really the only requirement there. You know the real requirement that's dangerous and difficult right now? It takes, it requires, not optional, two IPv4 routable addresses in sequence. So you have to get from your ISP a pair of IP addresses that are sequential. It, it, there's no way around this requirement. And with the IPv4 stack, you know, basically consumed, that's going to get harder and harder. I think for small businesses, that's especially true. I think the larger ones probably wouldn't have a hard time uh, finding two of their sequential IPs out of a block they already own. But certainly with the small businesses where they get maybe one or five static IPs from their provider, it's going to be tough to... sure. And, all, I, and I've dealt with a situation where we bought four IPs and they were totally different subnets. You know, the, the, the ISP was, you know, filling in gaps. I'm like, oh, no, I need four in a row. Sorry. You know, it's an interesting we, – we're starting to get our ISPs being scroungy with how they use these IP addresses. Hmm. And it's all a bunch of reuse. So, so for the uninitiated – and let's not get off topic. We'll jump right back on topic after this, but just – very quickly, what is direct access for people that haven't heard of it? And we have done a show a while back on direct access. One of the reasons I became a fan of it. It's VPN that doesn't suck. Really, that's what it is. Where the where the client side does the negotiation in a really sensible way, and it, it just seems to work. It is a bear to set up. So for us, it's hard, but for the customer, it's lovely. And I think that's you know I'm it's worth us putting in the hours to get it right to save it on the tech front, right? On the tech support front, just all those calls for all those pop-ups, for all that frustration, a lot of that goes away. Indeed, yep. So you're a, so you're an exchange guy that works in DRM or rights management, not, maybe not DRM, but whether it's IRM or whatever, what do, what do you call it when you're talking about rights management? Which Which acronym do you choose? Yeah, I catch myself actually saying multiple acronyms and realize I'm probably confusing my audience. So I think that's actually a good point if we start off and clarify what the different words mean in Microsoft terminology. So we have a service that provides things like DRM, and that service is called Active Directory Rights Management Service. One of the consumers of this service is the information rights management component. Um, so you might hear me say IRM or RMS, and I, I really mean the same thing, but technically RMS is the underlying component. And it is similar to DRM. So if you were to get some music from iTunes and you're not allowed to move it onto another computer because of your license agreement with that uh, subscriber, then this is going to be a similar analogy where we control as the sender what you're allowed to do with the content. So in an iTunes scenario, that's you know often undesirable for the customers. We want to be able to do what we want to do with it. But when we're talking about 
information technology and when we're talking about dealing with sensitive documents and things of that nature, I think it makes a lot more sense and people hopefully wouldn't be as resistant to it as they are DRM. So I don't like to use DRM just because nobody likes those letters. Yeah, yeah well, it's a bit of a loaded acronym, isn't it? So what? What we're not talking about encryption necessarily here. Encryption might be a component of part of the of the overall service, but this isn't just about encryption, is it? No, it's not. So it is important to point out that encryption is indeed a component. It's something that protects the content while it's at rest, um, and I suppose while it's in transit as well. But the main difference between encrypting content and not is when you encrypt content, you're usually trusting two endpoints: the creator and then the viewer. What you don't always have the ability to do is to control the authorizations of the user. So we trust the user implicitly and just assume that the person will know that this document is sensitive, for example, and won't forward it along. Uh, and we trust them to open the encryption, but we don't necessarily control what they do with it. Whereas RMS, we have the ability to give precise authorizations where we say, not only do we authenticate you are who you say you are, and you are indeed allowed to open and look at this content, but we don't want you to forward it to somebody else, or we don't want you to be able to print it. And so the RMS framework allows for those precise authorizations that traditional encryption does not. So let me let me ask an objection question right up front. Is that all right? Sure. Or, or a potential objection question. So so if I'm if we're talking about inside the Microsoft environment or inside an enterprise environment where we have control over everything, that's that's all well and good. What happens when I when you know so I email something and need to protect it, but it's going to somebody outside my environment. Maybe they have a Gmail account or a Hotmail account or some other random. They run their own web server or their own email server. Am I am I able to exercise this protection using this methodology still, or do, do I have any options in that regard? Yes, you are, and let me explain how. So the content itself that you create is going to be protected by the RMS technology, and that means that the content you create is going to be encrypted. So if I were to send an encrypted Word document to my colleague that has a Yahoo or Gmail address, then by default, that content is encrypted and Gmail is not going to be able to unencrypt, and so they would not be able to view the content. And so, again, by default, we want to make sure that things are secure until we go and do some action to allow or authorize this person. And the way that you can provide this framework to non-internal corporate users is through the Live ID framework. And so what you can actually do is you can federate your RMS environment with the Live ID service, and then people who have Gmail or Yahoo can get a Live ID and unlock their content based on their Live ID. So it is email address driven. That's how we identify our recipients and our users, but it doesn't have to be in your Active Directory. So I can take my my Gmail address, use that as the basis for creating a Live ID. Somebody sends me a piece of protected content, and because I've associate a live ID with my Gmail address now I'm able to I'm able to uh, open that file that, that otherwise I wouldn't have access to because I was granted access exactly and this is something that's not just going to be the scenario of I need to email a document to a potential customer or a potential uh, consumer out there that has a Gmail address a lot of times the scenario is what about other businesses where I don't want to have two corporations working to, with each other that I have to have all the people on the other side of the fence sign up for a live ID to use my environment, and that doesn't really make a whole right. lot of sense. So right. what you can do in some of the newer versions of RMS, and uh, when we talk about Exchange, some of the new versions of Exchange, you can have your environment either use an Active Directory trust, which is a bad word to a lot of people that 
think of a trust as a big monolithic relationship that we don't want to extend to anybody that comes asking for it. Well, with new versions of Active Directory, trusts can be much more granular than they have been able to be in the past. So that's something to think about. But something else is that you don't even have to rely on a trust anymore. New versions of RMS support the Active Directory Federation services. And this is an open framework that allows other businesses to establish relationships with us or you know, have two businesses relate to each other and not necessarily have to do it with their pants down. They can do it in a very protected way, in a secure and an open way, um, so that you don't have to build an Active Directory trust and set up all the stuff that's associated with that. There's a question here of when do you finally leave the perimeter? When is the email finally far enough away or the attachment far enough away that you've lost control of it? Well, so with with the RMS idea, the content you're creating is actually what's encrypted. So we're not necessarily encrypting the data path. We're encrypting the object itself, which in this case, I'm giving an example of a Microsoft Word document. So if I write up a Word document and I click save, I can choose within the Microsoft Office application. And actually, since Office 2003, this has been an option is to protect that item, that document with RMS. And so I can put it on a thumb drive and leave it anywhere I want to. And that particular document is encrypted unto itself. So it can go and be emailed to whoever wants to open it. And then when they do open it, their Microsoft Office product is going to try and contact my environment to get the authorizations associated with the user who is opening that item. And obviously, if I don't want them to view it, then the Microsoft Office code itself will prevent that product from being opened and therefore, you know, it wouldn't be decrypted and all that sort of stuff. Although you can't, once it's left your perimeter, you can't stop other people from setting it on. They just can't open it. Correct. Yeah. Just like if I have a, a safe and I move my safe around, I can't protect that safe necessarily from being stolen altogether. But the thought is that the safe itself isn't going to be able to be opened unless you know the combination. Right. It's not bad. It's pretty good. I just like the idea of actually, you know, giving somebody an opportunity to to stop sending an inappropriate file out of the business. Right. And so if we're talking about uh, sending, a lot of times the conversation needs to go into, well, how are they sending it? So if we're talking email, for example, and I want to make sure a, a popular example here is social security numbers. I want right. to make sure that social security numbers are not sent out of my organization. RMS can protect against this scenario, but uh, even without RMS, the transport rules, for example, in Microsoft Exchange can identify a social security number and prevent Exchange from forwarding that message on. Uh, and so later we can talk about how IRM complements that and can not only uh, prevent it from being sent, but can also protect it internally so that if somebody does receive it, they can't forward it either. And, and that's one of the authorizations specifically that RMS has. You can specify within a document what sorts of things the users can do with it, and that might be that they can open it, but they cannot forward it in an email. And so you can sort of protect things that way, uh, but you know there is no way to, within RMS, there's no way to prevent somebody from copying the secret recipe dot doc to their thumb drive and then handing it to somebody else that, that then opens it. Sure. Right, and there are, probably worth pointing out, there are technologies out there that do work that do help to prevent that from happening. You know, data when it's in use on the workstation. I think of, I think of data loss or data leakage prevention type of technologies that are real time things. But 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 really, you're solving a different problem when you're doing that, aren't you? Yeah, I think the the difference there is that you are entrusting, even if it's within an organization. If I have a an executive that's sending an email to maybe the legal department, and somebody in the legal department wants to leak it to somebody else in their organization or somebody else even outside of the organization, the content itself can be protected. So 
even if it does forward, it's it's encrypted, and you know we're trusting the encryption to protect us at that point. Legal department leaking documents. Now you're talking crazy talk. Never, never could that happen. <laughs> that would never happen. And the sales team would never share anything with anybody that they're not supposed to. Goodness, no. That'll never happen. Yeah, that ever. won't happen. <laughs> well, I'm honestly, I've, I've run into cases where people knew they shouldn't have sent it. Like they accidentally attached the wrong file or they, they meant to only put in the first worksheet or something like that. And, and having a barrier to basically pull it back. You know, how many times have you had that email with an attachment followed by a, you know, so-and-so has re- requested you to return that? Email from Exchange, and you're like, oh, okay, I know yeah, what happened Yeah, talk about here. the worst feature in Exchange is oh, yeah. the message that follows up and adds insult to injury yeah. when you accidentally send something. Well, you said something you shouldn't have. So just that bumper that came up and said, hey, this happened. But I also think from a SOX perspective, like logging all of that, just so you have a record of who sent what and when, is is really important. So, the, I mean, the detection mechanism is one thing to evaluate attachment. You're actually talking about the tool will go in and read the email to see that is the format of a social security number? Well, so that specific component, I was referring to a Microsoft or an Exchange transport rule. Okay. And there are transport rules that can evaluate expressions. And so uh, that means that if it looks like a social security number or you can actually get very complicated with uh, expressions and you can tell it the legitimate types of social security numbers out there. For example, if we said credit cards, you know, MasterCard start with fives and Visa cards start with fours, there's some predefined uh, numbers and things that can be picked up on right. by transport rules so that it can detect it, even if you don't have the normal 3-2-4 format. Right, but that's nothing to do with IRM per se. That's just a feature of exchange. Yes, to be fair, that is totally exchange. Okay, so where does the IRM piece come into play with exchange? So we, we talk about how IRM is a use of the RMS service, and the RMS service can protect against all sorts of things, and, and there's lots of uh, technologies that integrate with it. Exchange, of course, is one of those, and there's actually a great TechNet wiki page that describes each component that Exchange does that has to do with RMS. And the name of that uh, TechNet wiki page is Roadmap for Implementing IRM Features in Microsoft Exchange. So if you do a search for that, I'm sure you'll pull it up. Um, and I can actually kind of read down the list here and give you a quick overview of what each component is. So the first item in the list is IRM in Windows Mobile. Uh, Windows Mobile is obviously the platform for phones and, and mobile devices, and that actually has some IRM components inside of it. Now, the Windows Mobile IRM software is actually pretty limited, uh, and it requires you to physically connect your device to your computer to set it up. And since we know that Everybody loves getting a USB cable and setting up their mobile phone. Oh, yeah. Um, that's widely oh. used. <laughs> but right. since, since uh, apparently some people didn't want to do that, the ActiveSync protocol actually has some IRM support as well. Now, there are a subset of phones out there that support this particular feature within ActiveSync, and there's a Wikipedia article, not to be confused with the TechNet wiki, but there's a Wikipedia article that actually has a really great matrix of the ActiveSync phones that are on the market and the various different features that are being implemented by those ActiveSync phones. And one column there is the IRM over Exchange ActiveSync, or EAS, and you'll see the phones that match that and the phones that don't. One very, very, very sad thing is that Windows Phone 7 does not support the IRM uh, component. And I'm going to caveat this by saying yet, because I have faith that they will come around and add it at some point. Windows Phone 7 doesn't support a lot of features that we used to have in mobile management in Exchange. Like there's you know, a, like cut and paste. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's in like the phone that. itself. But if you, I've just spent a little time in Exchange 2010 documentation, and pretty much in any 
aspect of mobile, you'll have a caveat at the bottom of it says this does not support an exchange in, in Windows Phone 7, you know, or, you know, go over here and look. And it's just a huge, they did not work on those features. It's apparent to me. I presume they'll get them in at some point, but, and I hope they yeah, do. I think, I think what happened with the Windows Phone is they, they spent so much effort revitalizing the platform itself and making it a really cool platform that they just didn't go to market with all the features that people were expecting in time. And, and I guess, you know, there's a game you have to play to make sure that you're relevant and everything else is timed right. And this is something that probably couldn't fit into a commercial. So they figured they'd add it later. Yeah, I do feel like it's, they did not have the enterprise in mind this time around. They were trying for the consumer first and they'll retrofit the enterprise into it later. I think so. And I mean, you see that the iPhones and the droids and all this kind of stuff has certainly gotten a hold of the enterprise and the enterprise is catering to, you know, what used to be considered toys are now business critical applications. I mean, I've heard plenty of times now where people are wanting to get their iPad working with Exchange and, you know, something that I used to be able to make jokes about is actually now part of my job description. Well, and even Microsoft, they've got, they just announced a new version of System Center uh, Mobile Device Manager that's going to include iPads and iPhones and Android. For, for next year or the year after, which is mind-boggling. That's interesting. I actually thought that they were killing that product and rolling it into SCCM, but I guess uh, you're saying otherwise. Well, maybe it is part of SCC. It is part of the new version of SCCM. Oh, okay. Just okay. announced a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I do remember there was a product uh, not too long ago, Microsoft uh, well, System Center Mobile Device Manager 2008, and I think that is getting... Uh, it's now becoming part of configuration management. Yeah, yeah, they're taking the best of that. That's fine. Anyway, so back to the list of things that Exchange can do with IRM. One thing that uh, is worth mentioning in, in this order, because you're, we're certainly starting to identify a huge hole in the mobile phone market, is, okay, well, I don't want to use a cable to plug in my phone, and I don't want to have to get a very particular version of Windows Mobile, so does that mean my phones are not protected? And this is where um, I think one of the most powerful and the coolest things that Exchange can do as it relates to IRM comes in. And this is the ability to use transport rules to protect content. So we mentioned a little bit of this earlier. Let me just make sure that for the listeners, we all know what a transport rule is. So similar to how in Outlook, you are able to specify conditions and then actions. If an email comes into my inbox and is from Richard, then I immediately forward it to the trash can. Well, if I were to have a rule like that in Outlook, I build it with a wizard that has these if-then kind of statements. Right. In the Exchange product, we have a similar notion as it's a transport rule. Now, we're not manipulating content within a user's mailbox in a transport rule, but we're actually altering the flow of the message as, as the SMTP pipeline is considered. So what we can do is we can identify certain characteristics, and those can then be uh, the conditions for a particular action. So an example we mentioned earlier was a credit card or a social security number. If I find a social security number, then, and then the question is, do what? So one of the things that we can do is we can tell that, we can tell the transport rule to encrypt or protect this email with IRM when it is detected. So the question of what can we filter on is more of a transport rule question, and that's a very uh, rich set of things that you can filter on, expressions and who it's going to, who it's coming from, time of day, all this kind of stuff you can do. And then the action is is going to be to protect the content with IRM. Now, when we talk about protecting the content, not every scenario is going to be the same. Maybe sometimes I want something to be able to be forwarded, but not printed. And maybe it can be forwarded to some people, but not others. So the way that you define these sort of things is actually done in the RMS environment, and they're called templates. 
So the transport rule would sort of read like this. It would say, if I find a message that matches this text format using our social security example where I say 3-2-4, in a very simple example, if I find a message that has this expression in it somewhere, then I apply the do not forward template to this message. And so that means even if I have a Windows mobile phone or even if I'm using Thunderbird to send an email and the user doesn't necessarily know to encrypt this content or to press the IRM button or do anything like that, or if their phone doesn't support it, the actual exchange server will protect it when it identifies this. And so when the recipient reads this message, it's going to have that IRM uh, do not enter sign and they're going to have to contact the RMS server to open that message. So even though we might have a device like the Windows Phone 7 that doesn't support that, it's still going to be protected because Exchange will actually be the one protecting it for us. And that's done with a transport rule. And we can actually flip these transport rules around the other way, where maybe I want to make sure some things are not protected. I don't really have a great example for this right now, but just in this in the event that something was protected that shouldn't be or something that was um, protected needs to be copied to the compliance department. The transport rule can also decrypt it for some people if necessary. And so the transport rule is really where it's at with Exchange. And I should also clarify that um, in Exchange 2010, a lot of these features light up with Service Pack 1. So hopefully if you are that forward-leaning and using Exchange 2010 already, you probably also put on Service Pack 1 or are in the process of evaluating it. But I do want to make sure that, that your listeners are aware of that. Absolutely. Um, so we have a couple other features here, and I'll run through them pretty quickly. Sure. I don't need to just read the article verbatim for everybody, but one of the things that we can do is journal decryption. So similar to the copying compliance, we have this uh, journaling functionality in Exchange. It's been around for a long time. Journaling is when a copy of every message is sent to a particular repository so that someone in some legal or compliance department can look at it later. Well, if I'm sending messages back and forth to somebody using RMS, and these things are journaled to the journal mailbox, obviously um, we would want whoever's in our compliance department to be able to read them to see if they're in compliance. And uh, they might not have an RMS key to open that content. And so the journal decryption feature inside of Exchange Transport um, can do that as well. It can decrypt the content if it matches the administratively defined conditions. One of the other things we have in uh, Outlook Web Access now, and, and it actually was introduced in Exchange 2007, is web-ready document viewing. And so this is kind of a neat feature, I suppose, where if I'm at the kiosk in a hotel and for whatever reason they don't have Microsoft Office and I want to open an Excel spreadsheet, Exchange can actually render that Excel spreadsheet as HTML for me and I can look at it. And so the Microsoft Office document, if it's protected, it's important to know that web-ready um, would need to be configured so that it can open it. Otherwise, the user would just get a you know message saying that this is encrypted or something to the effect that it can't be viewed. Uh, pre-licensing is a term that is a little bit confusing when you first read it because it's not necessarily the licensing that us IT folks are afraid of when we're talking about uh, client access licenses or anything like that. But pre-licensing is the idea of where we are fetching the authorizations from the RMS environment at the time of transport. So instead of having our actual clients have to contact the RMS server every single time we want to do something and see that we're able to or not able to, pre-licensing can figure that out for us and include that as part of the message. And what this also allows for is offline scenarios. So if somebody emails me a protected document and I sync up, get my email 
up to date, and then I get on an airplane and I want to read that message while I'm in flight and I don't have internet connection, the pre-licensing will allow for that to open anyway because it has already done some of the work. Ahead right. Of you're, you're hitting on exactly the kind of issues I run into with these encrypted files where, you know, sometimes you're not connected. You need to still be able to get at the file somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a, a very valid situation. And even for the sake of trying to increase the performance and to reduce the workload, on our RMS environment, if we can do stuff ahead of time and, and make things smoother, then sure. uh, certainly we want to make sure that's enabled. How much are these features depending on Outlook? Well, the features themselves do depend on a client that is able to render or understand what IRM is. Right. And Microsoft Office, of course, is the primary um, product that we talk about when we're when we're talking about RMS. I, I'm not sure um, if it buys you anything by saying this, but I mean, Exchange Outlook Web App or Outlook Web Access can integrate to this. So right. it, that sort of is still Outlook, but it, it is pretty much a Microsoft um, technology at this point. Yeah, so if I'm using a third-party email package via IMAP into an Exchange server and I get one of these files, is there any recourse? Well, so I would say that one of the things that RMS provides is an SDK where independent vendors can write software that uses this framework. And I don't actually have a list of of uh, tools or products right now that have taken advantage of that, but I would imagine that there are products out there, uh, perhaps a Thunderbird add-in, for example, that, that would allow you to use it. Um, but to be clear, the content would not be unprotected in this scenario, so we're still protecting what's important, is, and that's the secret of the message or right. whatever's in there. It just would possibly leave those people high and dry. So you sure. need to make sure you consider your audience and your users um, before deploying this. I, I do a lot of work for universities, for example, and college universities are um, usually in the least amount of control over their end users oh. as, it, as it relates to any other organization. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not only just the students, but even the faculty and staff often, you know, have been doing things the way they want to do things, and they're not going to, you know, just jump sure. on. So if that scenario comes up, then you might have to divert people to webmail to open that particular document or just come up with a different way to communicate that material. Yeah, in, uh, yeah, the interesting problem. Although you also debate what is the sensitive information coming out of a of a university as well. I guess there's some. Yeah, so social security numbers, I think, is possibly one. Um, you know, if a if there's student records, perhaps is another. There, there's certainly personally identifiable information that is going to be true in any organization. I would agree that there's not the uh, secret sauce for the Big Mac probably going around, but you do have stuff that. Uh, research departments might be trying to create a product or things like that. So yeah, I think there's a lot of corp corporate and research type stuff. There's also quite often a lot of federal or other government you know types of activity that are going on inside universities and shared environments. And so the, well, and just plain old fashioned personally identifiable information. If you've got people's absolutely. information, you have to respect it. Well, when you have thousands of students with health rec health records and education records and financial records and stuff, that's some pretty sensitive sure. stuff. Yeah, and one of the things you can actually do in these transport rules if we're talking about exchange IRM is you can say anything that comes from somebody in the legal department needs to be protected with at least this XYZ template. Um, that way, if the users forget to protect a particular document or you don't even want to educate the users on the process because, you know, they're, they're not likely to follow it anyway, you can, as an administrator, define that things will be protected, and that's that. Um, while we're talking about it, there are some other products outside of the Exchange and, and Outlook that can benefit from RMS. They are uh, Microsoft-centric, but uh, SharePoint, for example, mm -hmm. supports RMS and IRM, and uh, even Internet Explorer is an IRM client, so you can actually have HTML files if you had a company intranet, for example, and you wanted to have 
the web pages themselves be IRM protected, there is a support for that in, inside of Internet Explorer 6 and later. And, and a lot of people are kind of surprised to hear that the IRM framework and RMS was actually introduced in Windows 2003. You can get clients for, for all the way back to Windows 2000 wow. um, to take advantage of a lot of this RMS functionality. Now, as I said, some of the transport rules and sexier things you can do with Exchange is new, but uh, you can certainly start exploring this today, even if you don't have the latest and greatest uh, versions of Microsoft technologies. But the the update, to, there was an update to a service back update for 2008 R2 that specifically addressed some things in RMS as well, right? Yeah, that's actually pretty interesting. We were talking about that earlier this week, and that's that uh, typically you find exchange benefits and exchange functionality are surprisingly introduced with exchange service packs and exchange updates. But um, what I found was that there was a uh, operating system update for Windows 2008 R2 SP1 for Exchange Federation. So if you have your uh, servers up to date with that, then they're able to use Exchange Federation, and, and that extends RMS um, even further and, and some of the things you can do with it. Right. So I have uh, Exchange 2010 SP1, and I'm using Federation to connect to, uh, I don't know, a regional office or a different subsidiary or something like that. RMS will carry across that with 2008 R2 SP1. Right. And, and I think the uh, main reason, and I would suspect the uh, timing, my spidey sense says that it's because of Office 365 and the federation that you can do with Office 365, we would want to make sure that we didn't lose any features doing that. To, um, so that's that's my guess as to why it came out when it did and who they're talking about when they're really talking about Exchange Federation. Sure. So what does the future of IRM hold for us? Maybe what, what do you envision? Well, I would envision, and uh, let me get my crystal ball here. Okay, I got it. So I think I would envision the IRM roadmap is probably going to include more client support. I mean, if it's going to gain any traction, it's going to have to do so with the support of all the other products in the marketplace. You see this happening with Exchange where uh, you no longer have to have Internet Explorer to have a fun time and Outlook Web Access. You can now use uh, Firefox or Chrome or any of these other clients. And I would expect that if Microsoft is going to make this a successful technology, they're going to have to take that same approach. Although, in all honesty, I mean, this has been around since 2003, and I would suspect that a lot of your listeners don't know about it, and sure. that's probably because Microsoft hasn't done a great job um, advertising it and making sure people know what it does. Well, and I think it's also the product itself is needed to mature as well. It's one of those roles that just doesn't seem to get installed. Yep, I would agree. But what's compelling to me is this idea of, you know, maybe you get it for Exchange, but the fact that it'll also work with SharePoint and other Microsoft tools just means it will spread naturally to help manage these problems. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that uh, SharePoint is certainly a, a good place where you can have it because there is you don't have to invest a whole lot into, um, you know, an exchange framework or adjust messaging. It's, it's something you could probably more easily roll out on a small scale. Whereas when we talk about you know transport rules and doing things like that, that's going to possibly be, be an organization-wide rule that people might be a little hesitant to test it in their environment, whereas SharePoint, it, it might be easier to isolate some of that. But In that token, Mike, is it possible to set up IRM in a way where it's logging rather than blocking? Um, you know, that's a good question. That's something I'd have to get back to you on. I don't yeah, have that information. That's fair, because I mean, that's what I would like to do. I'd like to set it up so I just know when files are going out, and then we can start assessing, do we want to lock this down to the point where it bounces them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would think that the main spirit of this product is to protect the secret recipe of, you know, the Coca-Cola product or the right. 
secret sauce of the Big Mac. And that's sort of one of those things where you cannot afford to log and see who is sending out these secrets right now. Right. I just want to, you know. Yeah, you actually want to stop it. Yeah, so one of the things that RMS actually does is, for example, if I wanted to prevent someone from forwarding the secret document, the forward button inside of Outlook is actually grayed out. So it's not like they click it and then it doesn't go anywhere and that there could be some secret agent that reports that back to the mothership. It, the button's not even there, so right. there wouldn't even be an opportunity to log anything because there's nothing to click. There's no way to um, do it. Yeah, and in a similar fashion, there's uh, a lot of other things that are disabled as well. So the, the buttons themselves are removed from the product. There's no more print button. There's no more forward button. Um, but even some things like the Windows built-in snipping tool or the Control-Alt-Print screen functionality, those are actually turned off, and you cannot even use the snipping tool or use the print screen button to take a picture um, of the protected content. Wow. Now, the argument that always comes up is it's a slippery slope. I mean, you could drag your computer monitor down the hall to the photocopier and copy it or take a camera from your uh, phone and, and take a picture of your screen. So right. it's certainly not a be-all, end-all to solve all problems with security, but I would say two things. And one is that it keeps honest people honest, and that's sort of the best you can expect with a lot of technical solutions to, you know, personality or behavioral sure. uh things that are occurring. But the other is that nothing is totally secure. And so if you try and pick something apart and say, well, this is not totally secure, then you're really going to find that every single time. Yep. So There's always a way for people who have enough intent. Yes. This makes it a hard target so that somebody would hopefully, you know, do something else instead of uh, compromise your security. But it is not foolproof. And there are some ways to, like I said, get the content, whether you're taking a picture or doing something more sophisticated. It's it's good, but it's not perfect. Hey, Mike, I think we're just about out of time here. Thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. I look forward to talking to you again. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.